the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. Sorry for that little hiccup. We were having a little bit of technical difficulty, but I'm here for better or for worse. I am Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you are listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions. All you have to do is call us. And you can do that by dialing 210-340-9585. It's 340-9585. If you're outside the local area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. We just got a couple of those, but we would like more of them. Or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app and send them in that way. And once again, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit call now and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time, 340-9585. I told you I would give you some information today. If we had it, well, we've got it. So let me thank you for your prayers yesterday. But our twin baby girls were born um, last night. Uh, Amelia was 4 pounds and 10 ounces, and Ariana's uh, weight was 5 pounds and 3 ounces, so they were tiny, but they're doing well, and uh, mom and babies are are all okay, so thank you, thank you, thank you for your prayers. Uh, I wouldn't know this for sure, but I'm always told the first baby is the toughest, and since she had two, uh, I'm sure it was tough. Paula got some pictures, I haven't seen them yet, but uh, she said the kids were absolutely beautiful, so again, thank you very much for your prayers. Well, that's all i got to talk about today since it's Tuesday and there's nothing really going on. Let me get right to some questions that have come in. Here is our first one. This is from our email inbox from John. He says, Pastor Ron, I'm sure this is a no-brainer, but I'm compelled to ask. Today in the news, a pastor made headlines by ziplining into his sanctuary over his congregation preaching. Obviously, there were skeptics to this stunt, but his response to it was that he was happy that people were talking about Jesus. I assume he was trying to justify his antics by quoting Paul in Philippians 1.18, but I think that's a dumb excuse. I know they can, but should preachers resort to tricks and gimmicks to draw attention uh, to God? You know, John, things like this kind of go in cycles. We went um, over about this past last year. Uh, there's been a lot of media attention over pastors who are doing this. There must be a, a manual that gets sent around, little catchy things that you can do to, to, to surprise your congregation. Uh, and zip lining in the sanctuary or or uh, uh, using like a rope to go out and swing over your congregation, those kind of things. I have no idea, John, why anybody would want to do that. Um, I don't know how they could get a Bible study out of it, but I agree with you. I think it's silly. I think church needs to be a little bit serious. Now, I'm a serious person, but at the same time, 
Um, there, as you teach the Bible, there are some lighthearted things that you can talk about. There's some fun you can have. There's always illustrations that make the point. Uh, I just don't understand these churches, and most of them we would call them seeker churches. They do these kind of things because they're intent on um, entertaining, um, always coming up with the unexpected. The problem with that is you've always got to come up with something better the next time, and I, I agree with you completely. I said this was last year when I was listening to the, the stories about pastors swinging over their congregations or ziplining in. Uh, this year, you know, the, the new thing has been pastors dressing up like homeless people and standing outside at the gate line, at, at the uh, entrance gate to the church between services and uh, seeing if people would stop and offer help or pray for them or even invite them to church. Um, and, um, you know, it just doesn't make any sense to me. If these pastors would teach the Bible line by line, chapter by chapter, then they'd have the opportunity to talk about all these things over the course of a career. I guess, John, it's that pastors feel so much pressure to fill the seats. And that's why if you teach the Bible, you understand Acts chapter 2 says, God adds daily to such, or to his church, such as are being saved. And uh, I think the, the, the safest way to do it is just to rely on God to grow your church. These kind of things, I don't think they have any place in church. Some people will say, well, at least they're just talking about Jesus. I'm happy about that. Uh, I don't think they're talking about Jesus. I think they're talking about, did you see what that pastor did? And I think unnecessarily, John, it drags the attention from Jesus to a pastor who's trying to make a point that would much more easily and more powerfully be made if, in fact, he just taught through the Bible. So I hope that helps. Here's another question from Scott from our mobile app. This one was. He says, I've been told that if I gamble, as I ha and I have in my past, that I have sinned and need to repent because gambling is a form of coveting. Uh, is this true? Does Timothy, 1 Timothy 6.10 really say that money is the root of all evil? Scott, a couple of things. I have gambling in my past as well. I don't know if you've heard that about my testimony. Um, um, when you gave your heart to Jesus, I'm assuming you did, uh, all those sins were wiped away. Now, here's the thing that you have to understand. If you gambled before you were saved, and you asked Jesus to forgive you, and he wiped away all those sins. He filled you with his Holy Spirit. Why would you want to go back and do the things that you used to do? Why would you want to do that? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. God, why would we want to go back into the old? Now, in my personal experience, I gambled a lot, Scott. I gambled a lot. And I didn't stop gambling just because I got saved. I didn't understand the Bible, hadn't even opened it at that point. Um, um, you know, people say, well, now you're a Christian, you can't do this, you can't do that. But but I had this life habit, this pattern of, of, of lifestyle. And, and I didn't break my habit. I'm, I'm a, a, a habit person. Um, but here's what happened. Because of Jesus, when I would go to the racetrack or I'd go to a poker game uh, or any other form of gambling, it just stopped being fun. It just stopped being fun. And at one point, it didn't take very long either. And, and I know Paula was home praying. She never nagged me about going out and gambling. She never said, well, you're a Christian now. You can't do that. I know she was home praying. And it just stopped being fun. And I thought, why do I want to do this? If I'm not enjoying it, I knew I once did, but I'm not enjoying it now. What's the point? So, Scott, that's the biggest question that you have to answer. If you've still got a desire to gamble, um, you really need to think about it. Now, I also need to be honest and say that gambling in and of itself is not a sin. Um, the Bible doesn't say so. Just like I'd like to say that uh, drinking alcohol at all is a sin, I can. It says being drunk is a sin. 
So if you, somebody plays a lottery or somebody plays in a card game, um, I can't say, well, you're in sin, you need to repent. But I would want people to think about the motives for doing so. Uh, I don't think gambling is necessarily a form of coveting. But I think many times coveting money, lusting for money, is sort of behind the reason why we want to gamble. So be really, really careful. If you love money, and by the way, First Timothy uh, 6.10 doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. It says that the love of money is the root of all evil. So if you love money, you're going to make decisions to get that money. And those decisions are going to be motivated by ungodly desires. And you're going to find yourself in real, real trouble. Scott, I haven't gambled in, and I used to own racehorses and um, travel all over the country watching the horses run or, or going to different tracks. I, I, I used to go to Las Vegas uh, on a noon or lunch hour plane ride just because I wanted the action. Um, but after being saved for about six months, I haven't gambled since then, and I have no desire to gamble, uh, because if I gambled and I started getting into the action, I'd have to leave Jesus behind. That's what my flesh did, and it stole so much from uh, our lives, mine and Paula's. Oh, I just don't want to go back there again. My life is now full and rich. So uh, be careful, Scott. Gambling is a really, really dangerous thing to do. Okay, let me go to the next question. Here is a question from Rachel. She says, how can we know that we are filled by the Holy Spirit and what gifts would we be given if we are? Now, Rachel, I'm going to assume that what you're asking is uh, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you're going to speak in tongues. Um, not necessarily so. You might, but it isn't necessary that you speak in tongues. If you're in a church that says that speaking in tongues is the sign that you're filled with the Spirit, they're missing the point altogether because the sign and there's only one, is love. How can you know you're filled by the Holy Spirit? It's simple. Do you love God? And do you love God's people? Do you have a heart that longs for um, unsaved people? You know, Rachel, when uh, I gave my heart to Christ uh, 28 years ago in February, um, I'd stare at people. I want to kind of get a look into their eyes. I want to decide, well, did they look saved? Because I want to tell them about Jesus. That's how I knew I was so by the Spirit. If somebody was going to go to hell, it broke my heart. So love is the, and I say that with emphasis, because it is the proof that you're filled with the Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter what other gifts you've got. You're not filled with the power of the Holy Spirit if there's no love. And if we remember that, we'll always have the ability to measure whether or not this is our flesh or this is the power of God working in and through our flesh. Now, in terms of other gifts, whatever gifts God has for you, those are the gifts that you'd want to exercise, that you'd want to walk in by faith. And if you want the gift of tongues, Rachel, then ask for it, God will give it to you, and begin walking in it. You know, a lot of times we think when we get these gifts that it's just going to overwhelm us like it did in the book of Acts chapter 2. Which remember, that was a sign gift. There was more than tongues. There was cloven tongues of fire as well as a sound of a mighty rushing wind. That doesn't happen now. That was one time only experience. So if you want tongues, ask him. Why would he withhold it from you? If it's a gift that will help you in your personal relationship with, with God. So just ask and then start 
using it. People say, well, that's just weird because I never know whether it's me or the devil. That's because the devil is right there telling you. But tongues are a wonderful gift. The least of all of the gifts, because it's the only vertical gift, it's one that's private between you and God, but nonetheless, it is for the edifying of the relationship between you and Jesus. Is there any conceivable way that he wouldn't give you that gift of tongues? It's not the Acts chapter 2 gift of tongues. It's a gift designed for one thing and one thing only, that you could communicate in the power of the Spirit just between you and God in a manner that bypasses your ability to understand. And that requires faith, so you receive it by faith, you exercise it in faith, and pretty soon you'll be speaking in tongues uh, without thinking about it. And by the way, it's not something that you are compelled to do. There'll just be times when you'll know it's the right thing to do and you'll speak in tongues. It'll be alone, just you and Jesus, but it'll be a great thing. So Rachel, I hope that answers your two questions. Um, love is the way we know. And tongues is just one of the gifts that we can get. 340-9585, we love your live calls. Here is a question from Henry. He says, um, Pastor Ron, can you talk about Christians and New Year's resolutions? Uh, Henry, you know I do that every year here at Calvary Chapel um, uh, as we get closer to the New Year. I'm not a fan of New Year's resolutions. Um, a resolution by nature is a, I will do this or I will not do this kind of thing. I'm going to start doing it. I'm going to stop doing it. It could be anything from reading the Bible to uh, getting healthy, losing weight. Um, I would stop this sinful. We ought to do that anyway. But here's the problem with resolutions. We don't keep them. And so when those desires are in your heart, take those things before the Lord. And you do that, Henry, simply by saying, Jesus, I know how to be reading my Bible more. That's just one example. And I want to know more about you. And then discipline yourself to do it. Make the decision to do it. Exercise the discipline to do it. And then let God pour out his Holy Spirit in terms of revealing more of himself to you. If it's a resolution like losing weight, examine your heart. Why do you want to lose weight? Is it a motive to honor God, to be healthy enough to serve God? Or is it just to look better? Well, power from God is available to help if you're going to use your newfound health to serve God. Now, one of the benefits of that is that you're going to look better maybe but remember, God cares nothing about how we look. But he cares everything about what's in our hearts. So I'm not a fan of New Year's resolutions. I tell our church every year that we have more want power than willpower. Um, you know, I go to the gym and every year, this is the time of year when people are starting to think about, well, next year I'm going to get healthy, I'm going to start working out. And the people buy all kinds of new gym clothes. They get all excited about it. And then a month goes by and you don't see them for the rest of the year. So just do your best before God. The things that he's put in your heart to change, just take them before the Lord and be honest and say, Jesus, I don't have the ability to do these things. But I know I need to and I want to. So help me, Lord, to honor you. Then you do your part. And that's resolved. Decide. Be disciplined enough to do those things. Be careful about falling into old uh, habit patterns. Just be on guard. Be with Jesus every day, Henry. And your new year will be a great year. One of the things I usually say at that meeting is that... Um, I want the next year, whatever the year that we're coming up on, I want the next year to be your most Jesus year ever. If that's what you want, then here's the way to do it. 
So I'll be doing that message, Henry, sometime um, in the last week of December. Then I'll announce it here on the program, so maybe you can tune in at calvarysc.com and watch it. Here is a question from Valerie. She says, why do you think Judas betrayed Jesus? Did he know who Jesus was? Uh, Valerie, he knew exactly who he was. And Judas betrayed Jesus because Jesus disappointed him. Now, I know that sounds strange. How could God disappoint us? But Judas wanted to be important. Judas wanted to be wealthy. We know that he was stealing from the money bag. Um, Judas wanted to rule and reign with Jesus, wanted to be a, an influential person. So I guess the short way of saying it, that Judas had his own agenda, and to follow Jesus, you have to have only his agenda. And Judas was unwilling to sacrifice the things that his flesh wanted for the honor and privilege of walking with Jesus. Now this is the most stunning betrayal in the history of the world, in my opinion. The most stunning. Remember, and I always think about these things, Judas was one of the disciples that Jesus sent out with authority over demons, with the authority to heal the sick, even to raise the dead, perhaps. And we remember the disciples returned rejoicing because of the power of God that was demonstrated in and through their ministries. And even the miracles done at Jesus' hand wasn't enough to keep Judas, I'm sorry, Judas' hand, wasn't enough to keep Judas in that place mentally, emotionally, where what God wanted was enough. I also think Judas was really smart, very clever. And I think his plan sort of backfired on him. I think he was set up in the trap by the devil. And I'm going to say this. Um, You've got to read it to, to, to really understand. But Judas believed that he could manipulate Jesus into taking his kingdom now. And he thought, he figured that, well, if I turn him in, then he's going to have to live rather than die. And I think he so wanted Jesus to change his whole plan that he thought, well, I'm smart enough, I'll figure out a way to do it and get some money in the process. But the problem with that, of course, is that Judas was overwhelmed with guilt and grief almost as soon as the betrayal occurred. Can you imagine what it was like, Valerie, to hear those words, Betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? Or earlier, when he was dipping the bread in the dip. And he looked at Jesus and said, Lord, is it I? And Jesus said, what you do, do quickly. Can you imagine the sins of betrayal that Judas experienced there? He believed him. He knew who he was. But he wasn't satisfied, Valerie, with who he was. Thanks for the question. Think about that a lot. Here is an anonymous question. Is it okay to pray with Mormons or Muslims? Um, what would you possibly have to pray with them about? That's the question you have to answer, Anonymous. What would you possibly have to pray with them about? Their God is not really God, certainly not the God that you're talking about. So the only prayer, the only prayer I would pray with a Mormon or a Muslim or any other religious person, for that matter, would be this one. Jesus, open his or her eyes, open their heart, and save them, O oh God, by revealing who you really are. Now, if that's the content of your prayer, Anonymous, um, they're probably not going to ask you to pray many more times. But understand that they have no access to God, not the access that you have. They can say God. Mormons will say Jesus. But it's not the same Jesus. They are cut off from God. 
if you're talking about a, a setting where people of different religions are getting together, the world likes to, 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 to believe that that ecumenical approach works. I call it the kumbaya moment. But the truth of the matter is, there is no value at all in going to a multi-faith prayer service and joining in prayer with people who don't know the one that they need to pray to. It's one of those things in this world that we're convinced is a good thing. Reach out to other religions. Be generous as you approach them. They need to hear about Jesus. And my experience has been that if that's the approach you take, you won't get invited to ecumenical prayer services. So it's not, I mean, when you say, is it okay? I mean, we can do it. But why in the world would we ever want to pray with somebody who literally denies our Jesus. It's an amazing thing. An amazing thing. We're inside one minute. Let me just ask you all to continue to pray for Jasmine and her twins. Um, they're doing well, but, you know, this is the first baby. And pray for Grandma and Grandpa, who, who now have double the responsibility. And I appreciate it very, very much. We've got 30 minutes left in the program. We'd love your calls at 340-9585, or you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. This is the Word to Santa for Life. We'll be back in two minutes. Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program. We have 30 minutes left. Plenty of time for phone calls. 340-9585 for your live calls. Here is a question from Ann. I almost said anonymous, but it's Ann. Why did God ordain only male leadership in the world? And are we violating his rules when it comes to women political leaders? And God didn't give us any rules for the world that we live in. The only two places that God ordains male leadership is in the home, that's the home of Christians, and in the church. Uh, The church, of course, belongs to Jesus, was bought and paid for by Jesus. So um, you can elect women leaders uh, uh, by all means. We should. There's some wonderfully qualified uh, female candidates. And uh, honestly, they couldn't do any worse than the men that we've been elected. So it doesn't make any difference if we have a woman president in our future or a woman who is a mayor or a governor. All of that is fine. It's just only in two places, the home, the Christian home, and in the church, which was paid for by Jesus Christ. So, Anne, I hope that answers your question. Let's go to uh, first phone call. Cindy from San Antonio. Cindy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Sunday, we we went. Um, we were in Luke, and there was a scripture that that always kind of unsettled me. It's um, Luke uh, eight. Um, Verse four, uh, excuse me, 18, and it says, Therefore, consider carefully how you listen. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even that what he thinks he has will be taken from him. And I'm thinking that I'm, if, if it's a correlation to the scripture, there's somewhere in the gospel where uh, somebody's saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesize in your name? And he says, get away from me. I never knew you. And I'm thinking, I'm sure this will ruffle a lot of feathers, but, you know, it's, I'm, I'm wondering if he's talking about the Muslims and the Buddhists and the Unitarians and you know, the Mormons and all these religions who really think that they have knowledge of God, but they really don't because it says even what he thinks he has will be taken away from him. So I'll listen to your comment on the um, radio. Bye. Thank you, Cindy. Appreciate the phone call. Um, a couple of things. We, we have to always read things in context. 
And so when Jesus is saying, therefore, consider carefully how you listen, I want you to remember that he's speaking to people, uh, the religious leaders that were in that crowd, and they're trying to kill him. He's speaking to them in parables. And the purpose of the parable is to illustrate the truth. Jesus was never trying to hide the truth or conceal the truth. He was illustrating the truth. It would be like uh, me making a point and using a, a very familiar illustration to be so, so everybody would say, oh yeah, I get it now. So Jesus is telling be careful how you listen. And then he says this, whoever has will be given more. Whoever has what? Whoever has ears to hear. That's the, the whole basis of this parable and Jesus' use of parables. If you want to hear, you're going to hear more. Whoever does not have what ears to hear, even what he thinks he has will be taken from him. In other words, he can think, no, I've got a knowledge of God. I'm okay with God. But, but even that will be taken away from him. Because Jesus, in this context, has gone out of his way to illustrate the truth, and they simply don't want to hear the truth. It is an amazing thing to me, Cindy, that um, we can be so close. I often think about the crowds that Jesus was speaking to and everybody hearing the same message, but coming up with different interpretations of that message. So you can make an application that people that are part of a false religion, um, this is a warning for them. Um, but I, I don't think it's the Lord, Lord type of warning. Uh, there he's talking to professing believers who, um, religious leaders, again, this is who he's talking to there, who are supposed to be representing God, but who in fact are misrepresenting him. So, Cindy, I think that's uh, the, the better approach. Consider carefully, listen. Uh, as you know, Cindy, because you come to church here, um, I'm telling people all the time, please, if you're nothing else today, hear this. It's me basically saying the same thing that Jesus is saying. If you have ears, use them to hear from God. What value is there in ears that will hear if you're not really listening? And that's the context that Jesus was speaking about in Luke chapter 8. It is going to be a tragic day, that day that every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Some of us, it will be a glorious day because we're going to confess that we belong to him and always have. And he's going to say, enter into the rest and the peace of your Lord. But for most of the people, it's in that moment they're going to kneel in terror in absolute terror and they're going to be ushered into an eternity in judgment torment so Cindy thanks for the question I hope that explains Laura says Pastor Ron if predestination is true how can we have free will well Lord there's no tension into those things I think here's the problem we have when people approach um, predestination the way you have uh, predestination doesn't mean God causes what's going to happen to happen. It just means he knows what's going to happen. He doesn't cause it. It's not causative. It's just that God knows the end from the beginning. He knows the end of my life as well as he knew the beginning of it. And, and it didn't matter whether I lived it or not. So there's no contradiction the fact that God knew that he was, uh, that he'd chosen me, and he chose me based on his foreknowledge. We know that from Romans 8, 29, from 1 Peter chapter 1, first two verses. He chose me, didn't negate my personal responsibility to choose him back. He chose me, I didn't know anything about that. But the circumstances, the events in my life were constructed in such a way that I got to a place after denying him for so long, after resisting him for so long, Laura, I got to that place where I was finally desperate enough at the end of me where I called out to Jesus. I had to make the choice to do it. Once I did it, 
I discovered that he chose me from before the foundations of the world. So those two things are not in tension with one another. In fact, they nicely complement one another. The problem is if you view predestination or election as causative, God's saying basically that I choose you, you have no choice. We have to exercise free will every day. It's one of the reasons that Paul says, uh, to me, in one of the most amazing verses in the New Testament, do not quench the Holy Spirit of God. How can we quench the power that raised Christ from the dead? Well, we quench that Spirit's power by disobeying, by being willful in our sin, by resisting God. But that's the choice we make. So free will is a part of our lives. It has always been a part of our lives. Um, it just means that when you're asked to make a choice before you know what the choice is or what choice you're going to make, God already knows it. And he's right there. He's right there. I always think of Abraham uh, offering up Isaac. He had the knife raised. God knew he was going to respond the way he responded and stopped him from killing his son. One of the reasons I like to think about that, Laura, is that God didn't stop when his son asked to be spared from sacrifice. Amazing thing to think about. Edgar wants to know, how do you respond when people say there is more than one truth? Um, I, I, and I don't mean this flippantly, and I, I never do it disrespectfully. Um, I actually encounter this quite often. Uh, I'll tell them to look up the word truth in the dictionary. Because by definition, truth is mutually exclusive. It is impossible for two things that are in contradiction to one another. It's impossible for both of those things to be true. And it's really easy, uh, Edgar, when you're talking to someone, to get them to understand that. That's irresistible logic. And so then I'm able to say, since we know that truth is mutually exclusive, does it make sense that you need to invest your time and your energy into finding out what's true. We get a lot of talk, Edgar, in our world about my truth or their truth or her truth. But there's only one truth, Jesus, who is the truth. And if we're going to claim that we have a truth, then it's incumbent upon us to find out if what we believe is true really is. I find these questions wonderful opportunities to share. Um, I appeal to logic rather than emotion. And like I said earlier, it's irresistible logic. So just don't get angry. Don't get frustrated. Just ask them to explain themselves. If I turn to my right, is it true only that I'm going to my right or am I also going to my left? And people say, well, you're going to your right. But what if my truth is something different? It doesn't matter, you're still going to your right. So, Edgar, that's the best way to respond to that. And uh, it, it always provides wonderful opportunities to share. Here's our next question. It comes from Jason. Why were the Gospels written in Greek? If the writers spoke Hebrew, um, they were written in Greek because that's what God wanted. I could do a long, long history course here, and I won't, I won't go into it, uh, except to say that, that God raised up a man that we know famously as Alexander the Great. The man had such an ego and such an intellect that God chose him and he wanted to conquer all of the known worlds. And if he was going to conquer all of the known worlds, then it made sense to him that he had to create a language that could be communicated to the whole world. And we, we know it now, it's common Koine Greek, 
Alexander, who was brilliant, invented the language, anticipating that he would conquer the world. And he wanted to unite the world under that language. Well, it just so happens that common Koine Greek is the most expressive, active language on the face of the earth. So God constructed things in such a way that the writers of the Gospels who did speak Hebrew, but, but more appropriately, they spoke Palestinian, was sort of a combined language of the day during the time of, of Jesus' life. So Jesus spoke Palestinian, some Bible translations say he said in Aramaic, uh, but it's neither pure Aramaic nor pure Hebrew. Um, but he also obviously understood Greek. It was the language that the Roman Empire was founded under. Now they spoke Italian as well, but this was the common language that united the world. And because it was so expressive, because it's so active, I'll give you one example in a moment, Jason. Um, God can say a lot more in Greek than our English language, as an example, would permit. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Literally, in the Greek tense, it's all have continued to sin continually and are continually falling short of the glory of God. There's great, great emphasis there. And that's why God chose Greek. You know, in Greek, there's four different words for love. In English, we have one. So Greek is very specific about what love is, the kind of love that God wants us to love people with. It's his love, agape love. So that's why the Gospels were written in Greek. Jason, I get to questions from people from time to time. Well, why can't we get an Aramaic Bible if Jesus spoke Aramaic? Because the inspired word of God was written in Greek. And by the way, the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, is one of the most authentic and valuable translations um, that, that have been left to us in this world. And that goes back to about 190, 189 uh, B.C. when the Septuagint was written, when the, 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 the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek. And you see a lot of times it's the Septuagint that's being quoted when Paul or any of the other uh, apostles quote Old Testament scriptures. So Jason, that's a good question. 340-9585. Here is an anonymous question. He says, this may seem like a weird question, Pastor Ron. And it is. His question is, do you have personal security? Uh, anonymous, I have a joke around here that I have a personal insecurity team. And I laugh because it's sort of God's joke. Uh, we have security here at the church. Um, um, the people who um, sort of watch out for me. Um, you know, uh, and, and if any of you are listening, please, I don't mean anything personal by this. But, but these aren't the guys you'd see in a Mr. Universe bodybuilding contest. These aren't really strong, buff guys. Uh, these are guys who just are there to help me. So it's not a personal security. I am not afraid for my personal safety um, um, because we have a lot of people that we are interested in loving and protecting. Uh, we, we have security precautions like every uh, church and every public organization ought to. But honestly, uh, Anonymous, the truth is that we don't have to, um, we just don't worry about it very much. So it's certainly not a focus of anything we do here. Now, if you're asking this question and you've been to Calvary Chapel and you've seen people around me, I'm visually impaired. And so I have no depth perception and I can't, uh, I fall down sometimes. And so I've got a, a guy who helps me off the stage because uh, it would be really embarrassing to fall uh, doing that. I don't walk around the stage 
because I'd bump into microphones and things like that. So you may have seen uh, a person, if that's the, the, the genesis of your question, um, uh, I have people that help me because I don't see well, and uh, but, but really security is, my personal security is not an issue at all. I always feel a little uncomfortable around um, pastors who are surrounded by these big buff security guards. Here's a question from Peter. He says, how can I reconcile a loving God with the terrible mass killings in the Old Testament? Um, all of the, the, the murders, or not murders, but all of the, the killing in war are, are acts of judgment. When Joshua and the troops go into the land of Canaan for seven years, uh, they, were, they were, were, were taking over the land. And you did that by war. But God was judging. Now, this is a just, holy God who is using Joshua and the, and the troops of Israel as instruments of judgment, just as he was righteous when he called the troops of Babylon or the troops of Assyria to judge his people for their sin. God is always righteous in judgment, Peter. So God's not angry with them, except insofar as they've sinned and rebelled against God, but he's been patient with them. And in many cases, for more than 400 years, the people turned away from God and rejected any information about God and mistreated God's people in the process. Well, at some point, everybody falls into judgment. So this wasn't just Joshua going in and randomly killing people. This was a righteous war bringing the judgment of God down on the enemies of God. And that's why he was told to kill men, women, and children. Now people say, well, how could a loving God commit genocide? How could a loving God kill women and children as well? Well, the women the adults were complicit in the sin. They too were being judged. But let's talk about the children for a moment. You remember in the prophet Jonah, when Jonah was mad at the end of the book because... God spared the people. Jonah preached repentance. They did. He was mad because he proclaimed judgment first. Jonah had. And God said, Jonah, what's it to you if I withhold judgment? What if I have 120,000 who don't know their right hand from their left hand? And he was talking about kids. And he was going to be patient with them. Well, in the same way, in the wars in Canaan, as an example, when children died before they were accountable for their behavior, they'd go to heaven. Rather than grow up and be an idol worshiper, rather than grow up and be guilty of grievous sin, in His mercy, God spared them and took them to heaven. And the only people, Peter, who can't understand that are people who are only living for their time here on earth. Can you imagine what those children would have been like? Or how they would have responded when Jesus said, Welcome to my home, now your home. So always look for his mercy. One other thought, Peter. The New Testament loving Jesus is the same God. All you have to do is go to Revelation chapter 19 when he returns to judge this world once and for all. On his thigh and on his robe are written the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But his robe is drenched in the blood of his enemies and he destroys them all with a word. And the blood runs throughout the whole of Israel. Five feet high, a river of blood. And that's Jesus, just holy God, who's bringing judgment again. In fact, the whole seven-year period of the Great Tribulation is a righteous judgment upon people.
So that's the way you reconcile the loving God. This is the God who gave his only son that we might believe and not perish. Last question for today. This one is from Andy. Uh, God is jealous, but being jealous is a sin. Why would God be jealous of anyone? Uh, Andy, God is jealous, but not like human jealousy. Uh, jealousy is a bad fruit of, of, uh, of the spirit, uh, of, the, of the flesh, rather. And uh, we know jealousy is a bad thing. But God is not jealous of us. He's jealous for us. And just as an example, if I was to do something uh, that would change my life, just say, okay, I'm done with this Jesus thing, I'm going to go uh, follow this other religion, he would be jealous. But it's because he's jealous for me. And the difference between being jealous of and jealous for somebody is infinite. And when God is jealous for you, it simply means that he's got your life in his hands and he can lead and guide and direct your steps because he wants you to experience the fullness of joy, the fullness of joy that he knows is available to you rather than miss out on it because you made bad choices. So I love the fact that God is jealous for me. I love the fact that he prepares a path before me and directs my steps. He doesn't take away my free will. But he directs my steps so that I stay on that path. Ephesians 2.10. And when I stay on that path, Andy, then Jesus and I are walking together and we can walk through anything. And then when you look into those eyes of Jesus and you see that smile on his face, then you know beyond any doubt that him being jealous for you was the best thing that ever happened to you. So, Andy, I hope that makes sense to you. Not jealousy like you get jealous of someone, but this is jealousy of a completely perfect, holy, and righteous God. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. Phone calls were quiet, but we'd love to hear you tomorrow. I'll be back, Lord willing, at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Have a wonderful evening in the Lord. We'll see you tomorrow. God bless. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.